All right, I'll remind you of what we've been talking about the last few weeks in just a moment. But I want to remind you of a few things that are coming up first. One is an oversight. It should have been in the program as an announcement, but is not. It was last week, and it got dropped this week. But it is this uh, Tuesday uh, at 2.30 at Calder's Dairy Farm in Carleton for all moms uh, and tots. So it's the monthly Moms and Tots Day Out. So ladies, uh, that will be, will be a great time, I'm sure, fellowship with other moms, and your kids will have a great time. So mark that down, 2.30 this uh, Tuesday at Calder's for moms and their little ones. And then this uh, Saturday at 10 a.m. is the first of two newcomers' brunches that we're having at our house. So a few times a year, we have a, newco- we have a brunch at our house for those who have never been to one of our brunches. We call it the Newcomer's Brunch uh, because uh, that's who it's primarily designed for, but sometimes we have folks attend who have been here a while, and that's because they weren't able to attend any of the previous Newcomer's Brunches. They had a conflict, scheduling conflict. So if that's you, you've been here a while, but you've never been to one of the brunches, consider yourself a newcomer, and uh, we'd be glad to have you. However, we need to know who is coming to which of those brunches. So there's this one this coming uh, Saturday, and then... Two Saturdays after that, on May 31st, we're having a second one. They're both Saturdays. They're both 10 a.m. to uh, to noon, uh, but we don't kick you out at noon. If we're in a, engaged in a heavy conversation, we'll continue our heavy conversation. Uh, there's no program for that. It's simply us getting to know you in a different setting. But if you come with any questions that you have for me, I'd be happy to try to answer them for you. But it's just a, a fellowship time for us and those who are new to the church. So we'd love to have you, but we need to know how many people are coming and to which brunch you're planning to come. So at the Information Center out in the lobby, before you leave today, if you would uh, let them know which you're planning to come to, and they will give you a card that has our address on it and our phone number so that you know how to get there and you can call us if uh, something comes up and it changes for you, okay? So please register for one of those two newcomers brunches before you leave today. And then this week, we're asking everyone who's considering family camp to finally make your decision. We've been announcing that in the bulletin for months. Family camp is in uh, the middle of June. It's the 15th through the 20th. You don't have to stay for the entire six days. You can stay for two days or four days or whatever is best for you. But uh, you do need to register. So we're asking you to do that this week, and you do so by calling uh, the uh, resort on the west side of the state in Rothbury. That's near Muskegon, uh, and it's the Double J Ranch. 1-800-DOUBLE-J is the phone number. All right, those are the announcements that I have. What are we talking about today? What have we been talking about? Well, we have for the last two uh, sessions in this hour, we've been talking about church philosophy. And the reason we've been talking about church philosophy is because we are at a juncture in the life of our church where God has allowed us this expanded facility. He's allowed us the acreage that we have here. And in turn, that means that we have opportunities for reaching our community in a number of ways that we didn't have when we were vagabonds uh, renting uh, about 25 different facilities over uh, the prior 12 years. So now we, we can do that. We have a number of things that we're planning to do by way of outreach. But if you're not careful and you don't have a solid, biblically-based philosophy of church life, then a church that aspires to be successful in reaching its community with the gospel 
can slip into a pragmatic approach to ministry. That whatever gets people to come is justified because they come and they hear the gospel and some of those people come to Christ. So what could be better than that? And so if you're not out and out sinning in what you do, then go for it. That's the, that's the uh, mentality that we have today. And I tried to show two weeks ago that that approach will not fly, uh, a la 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. At that time, we looked at those five verses together, where Paul, who wrote that passage, says to the church at Corinth, there were things that you wanted me to do when I came to you in order to meet your cultural expectations. And that particular thing you wanted me to do, namely to engage in Greek rhetoric, for me to have, uh, for me to have uh, uh, persuasive speech in the way I presented the message to you. That's what you're used to. That's what you like. It's even a form of entertainment for people in that culture. That's what you wanted me to do. And the truth is that there's nothing sinful about that. Except that it detracts from the glory of God and the power of the gospel. And so I will not do anything, Paul is saying, that would detract from the ultimate purpose for which I am a missionary with the gospel. And that is to bring honor and glory to God. So that the boasting for the results and the success in ministry will be boasting in the Lord rather than boasting in Paul or someone else. Let him who boasts boast in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 1.31. So Paul says, I wouldn't engage in that rhetoric, in that persuasive speech, so that people were not drawn to me and drawn to my abilities, but rather are drawn by the Spirit, by the power of the gospel. That's what he says. Well, that's a sobering thing then for us if we, as we think about church philosophy. It means that we do not have on our entree, our, our cafeteria of things to pick from, it's not just anything that's not sinful. And so that mantra that many use, that as long as it's not sinful, overtly sinful, then it's okay to do if people like it to get them to come and then hear the gospel, we're going to have to modify that somehow. We're going to have to modify it, else we fall, uh, fall to error uh, in terms of 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I said last week that this idea of thinking about church philosophy means that we're trying to acquire wisdom. That's what philosophy means, love of wisdom. So when we talk about philosophy of ministry or church philosophy, it means we want to have wisdom as applied to church life. So all of us, then, need to desire and acquire this uh, wisdom from God's Word about how we go about the ministry that God's called us to here, and especially so now that we have this opportunity with this place and this acreage to reach our community. If we don't, here's what, here's what will happen, guaranteed, that everybody will have lots of good ideas about stuff they think we should do. And we will glom on all kinds of programs of stuff we could do, probably none of them sinful. But if we're not careful, some of those will detract from the character of God, the glory of God, in the way we go about it, and in who gets the credit for it. So we need to, at this early stage then of this uh, renovation of our building, think about wisdom as it applies to church life. And that begins, I said last week then, with having a clear definition of what we mean by church, 
and then looking at what the Bible describes as church ministry in the first century. Definition and description. And the definition that we gave last week for church, the word church, is this. The English word translated church in your New Testament is a translation of a Greek word, uh, ekklesia. Ekklesia is a compound of, uh, it is a combination of a Greek word and a Greek prefix. The word is kaleo, which means call out, or call, and ek, a prefix that means uh, uh, out. And so ekklesia means to call out. The church is comprised of people who have been called out called out of the world and to God. Now that one fact in itself, if understood properly, then will affect the wisdom that you apply to church life. Because who comprises the church then? It is the people that have been called out. It is not everybody who shows up. Do y'all get that? You can be in the building and not be in the church. And if all you're interested in is getting people in the building, then you're not building the church. And I said last week, there's a a great difference between amassing a crowd and developing a congregation. A congregation is a group of called out saints. The very term saint means separate ones. Holy, sanctified saint, these are all related terms which all have this idea of being separate from the world. So from God's standpoint, there are two classes of people, always and at all times, two. There are believers and unbelievers, those who are in the light and those who are in darkness, those who are part of the church and those who are part of the world. And the Bible is replete with all of those antitheses. If we're going to have a good philosophy of church ministry then, we have to start with what is church. Church is that. And then how does that affect church life that the church is, in fact, comprised of people who are called out of the world and and to God? And I I hope to show that. So that's the definition. And then there is the description in the New Testament of how church life happened. And as you read through your New Testament, here's what you'll find. You'll find that these were people who had been saved, who had been called out of the world and to God through the ministry of the gospel, and that they gathered together, and that they would gather together regularly. We have indication in the New Testament that they would gather together on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. Uh, That indication is found in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. It's also found in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2, where Paul says, here's how you should take your collections for ministry. On the first day of the week, each person should bring a sum in keeping with his, his income. And so that's the reason we, we do what we do. And uh, then the book of Revelation refers to the Lord's Day as well. So the Lord's Day or the first day of the week. Now, why the first day of the week? That was the day that Jesus raised from the grave. And Christians then began to worship on the first day of the week as opposed to how the early church, which was completely Jewish at that time, had been accustomed to prior to coming to Christ worshiping, namely on the seventh day, on Saturday. So the first day of the week, the the Lord's Day, and they would gather together, and then the Bible and the letters of the New Testament give us indication of the kinds of things that they would do when they gathered to worship. They would would sing, uh, according to Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3. They would offer public prayers, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
The word would be pre- read and, and preached. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter, chapter 4. Uh, they would engage in the offerings, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. There would be expressions of fellowship when they would come together. Greet one another with a, a holy kiss at the end of the letters. These are expressions of, of fellowship. So we greet one another, hug, handshake, and even, even you know, the, the announcements. We try to make expressions of our interconnectedness and our fellowship. And uh, we have these events because we are together trying to carry out uh, carry out a mission that the Lord has assigned to us. So the components of what we do when we come together for worship are given to us in Scripture. And we do those on the first day, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. Now, the Bible then defines for us what the church is, and it describes what the church did. And throughout, you find the assumption in Scripture that these are called out saints, these are saved people, these are people who are no longer part of the world, they've been called out of the world into Christ. And therefore, what's done in the worship service is designed for the building up, the edification of those people. Not everybody else. So that then raises a very good question. How do you relate to everybody else? Because on the one hand, all right, Brown, fine, you've beaten that up, move on. I buy what you're saying. The church is a called-out group of people. We're saints. We're set apart. As I said last week, worship can only be done by those who have a relationship with Jesus. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so if you don't know Jesus, you can't worship God. So you don't then design a worship service for people who can't do it. So if then what you do on the first day of the week is designed for those who are in and not those who are out, then how are we supposed to at the same time carry out a mission for those who are outside? How are we to successfully engage in uh, the Great Commission if, in fact, all of that is true and, and it is? Well, those are the questions then that I want to get to today. Uh, now, I want, to, I want to further show some indications in the New Testament that the life of the church, as it's described, assumes that the definition of church is a called-out group of people and consisting of only those who are in Christ and designed for those who are in Christ. I'd like to just give you a few indications of that, and then we want to tackle this issue of practically how can we engage in the Great Commission and at the same time maintain the church as God's holy people, God's called-out people. How do we do that? So what are these other indications of the church having a defined group of people that identify themselves as followers of Jesus. And that's what the church is. Not just a crowd, not just everybody, it's those people. How do we know that? Well, one is, uh, you think about communion. And think about the descriptions in the New Testament of communion, particularly in 1 Corinthians 11. That communion, as described in 1 Corinthians 11, is the, the celebration of the Lord's body. So the whole imagery there requires that somebody be a member of the body, a part of the body. In fact, 1 Corinthians 11 then is followed up with 1 Corinthians 12, which talks about the body and all of its parts, and all of us are members of that body. Communion then assumes that the people who participate are people that are part of the body of Christ. 
Now, what are you going to do if you are someone who then defines the church in a more open way than a called-out group consisting of only those who have been regenerated by the Spirit of God and called out of the world and to, and to the Lord? What are you going to do with communion? Well, one thing you can do is engage in what's called open communion. Just anybody can engage in, in communion. Um, and, you know, we don't, we don't worry about it. You know, that's up to you and God, and, well, that would be a bad way, in my view. Um, we have a responsibility to explain to people what communion is and, and who it's for, and it's for those who have come to faith in Christ. Now, I can't, you know, we don't we have our ushers slap anybody's hands. You know, at that point, then, it is up to you, but you get a long explanation from me every time we do the Lord's table as to what it is, what it represents, and who's supposed to participate. Now, if you find a church who's not doing that, if you find a church that's having communion and they're just saying, anybody who wants to take communion, come and do that. As an act of love because we love our neighbors and we don't want to discriminate and whatever. If you have a church doing that, you can be sure you have a church that has not properly thought about philosophy of church life. Now, many churches, some churches do that, many churches do not with communion. What they'll do is they'll move communion to a time other than Sunday morning when you're less likely to have unbelievers there, which is better, but in the New Testament, it appears that God's people met on on Sundays, on the Lord's Day, and I would maintain that we ought to continue to meet on the Lord's Day, and we ought to have the Lord's table when we have it on the Lord's Day, rather than moving it off because we've decided to do something different on Sunday than what was done in the, in the New Testament. But that's one way to address it, just move communion so that you don't have that many unbelievers there. But the existence of communion and the necessity of us doing this until the Lord returns, as He commanded on the night before He died, The necessity of us doing that requires then that we somehow have a way of defining who is in and who is out. Further, membership. The idea and the necessity of membership suggests that there are people who are part of the called out group and then there are people who are not or have not identified themselves as such. Now that's a question that people ask often. Where is membership in the the New Testament? And when we think of membership, we think, about, we think of what we did this morning. We have a couple of families come, come forward, and we've heard their testimonies, and we're recommending them, and we, and we vote on them. And you say, you know, I missed that passage that says, at the end of the service, the pastor should have the people come up you know, front, and you should do it. And you miss that because it's not there. So that's simply a method for us to identify people who have a credible testimony that they, have, they belong to Jesus that they have been called out of the world, they've been regenerated. And that as evidence of that regeneration, they have followed him in obedience and baptism and that they want to serve him with us here. That's that's what we're doing. It's just our way of doing that. You could do that a lot of ways. You could have the people write a letter and then somebody could read the letter. And this letter is from these people. Here's their testimony. There are a lot of ways you could skin that cat. But you've got to have some method, the Bible doesn't give us the method, but some method of identifying those people who are part of the church and those people are not. Now, why? Because the New Testament, some of the New Testament commands cannot, now hear this, they cannot be carried out 
except with membership. I'll repeat that. Some New Testament commands cannot be carried out, they cannot be obeyed apart from membership. Like what? Well, one is <laughs> church discipline. You all know what that is, or do, or do you? Church discipline is, Jesus says in Matthew 18, that if someone sins, go to him, show him his fault. If he hears you, you've won him, uh, it, and, and you leave it just between you and your brother. If he, if he will not hear you, then take two or three others along. And if he will not hear them, then tell it to the church. And if he will not hear the church then you are to treat that person as a publican and a tax collector. That is, you're to treat that person as if their profession of faith is not valid. And then 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 uh, tells us about a case of, of withdrawing from someone, and it tells us that you're not to have associate with the person who is proclaiming Christ but living in a way that is blatantly contrary to Christ. Well, how can you kick somebody out if they haven't first been in? Anybody? The assumption of church discipline is that you know somebody is in. You have to be part of the body in order to be excommunicated from the body. Excommunicating means ex, uh, out of fellowship. That's literally what it means. This is someone then who is out of fellowship with the body. So, think about the implications of that then. If you have a church that has not thought about church philosophy, but rather they just do church, and we all know what doing church is, right? Doing church just means showing up, getting as many people as you can get to come, using whatever means you can to get them to come, having them hear the gospel. That's how the Great Commission goes forward. That's what we assume, and we don't think about it very much. And if you're a church that does that, and you wind up with more of a crowd than a congregation, and you don't have a way to differentiate between who's in and who's out, then how are you going to do church discipline? And guess what ends up happening? You don't do church discipline. You stop doing that. Now, if a church finds itself having to compromise on communion and, and not do church discipline then that should be an indication to you that we missed it on, in terms of wisdom related to church life, church philosophy, philosophy of ministry. But I'm telling you that many a church does exactly what I just said. In fact, many of you have been in church for much of your life and you don't even know what church, you have never seen it. Part of the reason you've never seen it is because nobody's thought about what church is. We just do church. So the description in the New Testament of how church goes requires this called-out group of people, who's in and, and who is, is out. The definition requires that. Communion, membership, require, require that. There are commands in the New Testament that can't be obeyed apart from the assumption of membership. One of those is church discipline. And here's another thing. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, Hebrews 13, 17, the Bible says, obey those who have authority over you in the Lord. Obey them. And do so so that their work will be a joy and not a burden. And then it says this, for they serve as men who must give an account. So that means those of us who are leaders in God's church will stand before Jesus one day 
and give an account for what we did with the flock entrusted to us. Now that's a heady responsibility. You will give an account. Now how does that relate to knowing who's in and who's out? Here's how. Guys and, guys and gals, in order for me to give an account and us to give an account before Jesus of the people that he has given to us, I need to know who I'm responsible for and who I'm not. I need some way of knowing who the people are that say, I am placing myself under your under-shepherdship. And I want you to shepherd me, and I want to be held accountable by this group of believers. Otherwise, how am I to give an account to Jesus? Who am I going to give an account for? Everybody who wanders in? Everybody who's part of the crowd? The assumption in the New Testament is that there are people who have publicly professed, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I want to unite with this church to carry out the Great Commission. Now, the primary way they would do that in the New Testament was baptism. When they were baptized, they were then brought into the church by virtue of being baptized, and that was a public statement that I belong to Christ and I'm also joining the church. Over time, what happens is local churches, because the Great Commission moves forward, multiply. They begin to multiply in particular cities. This is not an issue you had primarily in the New Testament. Multiple churches in the same cities. So over time, as churches multiply and you have multiple churches in a city, now being baptized in one church doesn't mean that the other church that you might become a part of later knows anything about your testimony. So when someone comes as, Phil and Jamie did, in their case from Florida, but they've been part of a church down in Florida, but now they're looking to become a part of our church. We need to know their testimony. And so we have a means of hearing their testimony and reporting to the congregation that we have heard that and that they have been baptized and we are recommending them for membership. That's a necessity because of the multiplication of churches. Multiple churches in a town means that not only might people come from a job transfer across state lines, people might move from one church to another within the same geographic region. And some of you have done that. Same thing has to happen. So there are commands and issues in the New Testament that simply cannot be carried out apart from the assumption of membership and an understanding of who is in and who is out. If you're going to have a proper philosophy of ministry, it has to start there. The church is a called-out group of people. It's comprised of people who have been regenerated by God the Holy Spirit, who have embraced the gospel that's centered on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and have committed themselves to following him in obedience. Those are the members of the church. But that church has a mission. And how do we carry out that mission? How do we relate to people then who are not part of the church? The way you don't do it, and then I'll get off the way you don't do it and get to how you do do it. The way you don't do it is you don't transform worship into something other than worship. You don't design worship for unbelievers. You don't design worship for people who can't do it. That's, that's a lousy way to go about it. 
And you do that. You do that for a period of time. And in most cases, that church will become something other than a called-out group of people. And I personally, I've studied this a good bit. I have debated this and talked about this and thought about this a good bit. And I believe that one thing is what is hurting our churches most today. Failure to define what the church is, understand what the church is supposed to be about, and then structure it accordingly. All right, that's what you don't do. What do you do? Here's the great news. We have multiple opportunities to relate to people who are still outside of Christ and who need the gospel of Christ. Multiple opportunities. And one of those opportunities is for us to understand, have a robust uh, understanding and application of something called common grace. You all know what I mean when I say common grace? Common grace is this, that God in his common grace has given even sinful people, which all of us are, and sinful people outside of Christ, all of us were prior to being drawn to him. But in God's common grace, he's given even sinful people a desire to do the right thing in certain circumstances. So even though the Bible teaches our sin is very deep and total, as a matter of fact, total depravity, the Bible teaches, yikes, that we are sinful mind, will, and emotion. Each part of us is affected by sin. Even though that's true and the Bible teaches that, a la Romans 3, it just goes on to describe from verses 10 through 18 how bad we are. It's really depressing. Okay. And that's the plight of humanity. But despite that, God in his common grace, with the vestiges of the image of God still in even sinful people, that some husbands still stay married to their wives, even outside of Christ. And some parents want to raise their children in a way that their children obey and have a certain kind of moral code. Now, now why do they do that? They do that because of what we call common grace. If it were not for God's common grace, then all people would be as bad as they could be. But thankfully, the world is able to function because God restrains the effects of sin in people so that even sinful people do the right thing. They never do it for the right reason, which is the glory of God. That only happens when you get saved. But they do the right thing. So here we are, you've got neighbors and you've got co-workers who are in families, marriages, who are having marriage problems. And you struggle, if you're honest about it, you struggle with marriage problems. And you're able to, on a common grace basis, talk to that person about what marriage is and struggles in marriage. And we, as a church, can offer help to people on this issue of marriage and then point them to the real reason we have struggles in our marriages. It's because we've rejected the God who gave marriage. The reason we have struggles in our families is because we've rejected the God who, who instituted the family and who gives us instruction in his word about how families are supposed to go. You can talk about that with that coworker. You can talk about that with that, with that neighbor. And then we as a church can offer series on stuff like that. To say, this is where marriage came from. This is where family came from. Or, not only do we have common grace in common, but we also have fallenness in common. 
and the effects of living in a fallen world in common. So everybody here has got their own story about stuff that they're dealing with, illness, financial problems, all kinds of struggles, struggles we won't have in heaven, struggles they didn't have in the garden. But we've got them now because we live in a fallen world. You live in a fallen world and you're affected by the fallenness of the world, as is your neighbor, as is your coworker, as is all the people in this community. So we can teach people about that fallenness. We can teach people about all of that struggle. And we can identify with that because we too live in this fallen world and we have those struggles. But then we point them to the solution to those struggles. And that one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And it will be populated by those who have been restored completely, body and spirit, by the Lord himself. So there's common grace, and then there's also our, our common fallenness. And then there is, thirdly, there are the, forgive this term, there, is the, there are the communicable attributes of God. Communicable attributes of God. What is that? If you take any theology book, a theology book is study of God, that's what the word means, and you take a systematic theology book, and in the opening chapters, it'll describe what's called theology proper. That is, it'll be focused on God himself, and then the later chapters will be focused on other doctrines that then flow out of that. Doctrine of man, doctrine of creation, doctrine of sin, doctrine of salvation, and Christ, and uh, the last things, end times things. But it always begins with theology proper, who God is and what God is like. And those books will divide the characteristics of God, the attributes of God, into two major categories. Sometimes those categories are called his greatness and his goodness. And the attributes of God's greatness are in a separate category because this is what they all have in common. They belong to God and God alone. Nobody else can have them. So in that category of God's greatness is his sovereignty. Only God is sovereign. His omnipotence, that is, he's all-powerful. Only God is all-powerful. His omniscience, only God is all-knowing. His omnipresence, only God is everywhere present. So these are attributes, characteristics of God that belong to him and him alone. They're in this category of his greatness, but they're sometimes called his incommunicable attributes. And that is because they can't be shared with anybody else. Only God can do that. But then there's this other category of God's character qualities sometimes called his goodness or his communicable attributes. Things that we can display in some measure that God has in perfect measure. Things like God's mercy, God's grace, God's truthfulness, God's faithfulness. Now think about a people who lives in a way that they're reflecting God back to God, as I said in the first hour. And they're living in a way that they are displaying mercy to people. Just think about that one thing, mercy. People who are in need. And there's a called out group of people who reflect the mercy of God in helping supply the needs of people. And so you have a food pantry at your church. And you help people because they have needs through ministries of mercy, mercy ministries. And in so doing, you are displaying the character quality of the mercy of God. 
There are almost unlimited things that a church can do, collectively can do, in order to show the communicable attributes of God to the community and display then the character of God to that community. Now, you can do all of those things. You can focus on common grace, all kinds of things we can do focusing on common grace. Focus on our common fallenness. Focus on the communicable attributes of God. There are all a myriad of things then that a church can do in order to connect with its community without compromising one bit what the church is. And that's what our church aspires to do. That's what we aspire to be. We are not interested in being a holy club. There's us and there's you, and we don't want you here. It might sound like that in my first few weeks here. I'm simply saying, let's, let's know what the church is. Let's know who's in and who's out. But then let's, as God's redeemed people, now display the character of God in the way we interact with those he has called us to reach through common grace, through recognizing our common fallenness, and through displaying his communicable attributes. Now, there's a warning with all of that. It is very possible for you to do, us to do as a church, the things that I'm talking about. And for us to be thrilled with showing mercy to people by helping them in all sorts of ways, food and clothing and those kinds of things. Helping them with these common grace areas of marriage and parenting. Helping them cope with issues of common fallenness and and grief and loss and those kinds of things. And we can get so excited about the fact that we're helping people that we can forget to absolutely intentionally connect that to the message of the gospel. And I'm letting you know now, that's the kind of church we are looking to be. But I'm also letting you know that we, I, all of us, have to be extremely careful that we keep the message of the gospel paramount. Because otherwise, just doing the good deeds becomes an end in itself. That's happened in church history over and over again. Well-intended people started doing mercy ministries, and it morphs over time into something called the social gospel. You guys know what that is? The gospel then becomes social reform and just helping people. Now, look, we want to help people because God helps people, because that displays the character of God. But then we've got to, when we give, as Jesus said, you give a cold cup of water, does anybody remember? In my name. You let people know, I am doing this in the name of Jesus. I'm doing this because of what Jesus did for me. And you want to point them, and we want to point them to the Savior in what we do. So God has given us an opportunity to just make connections with people. Use this field to do that. Use this building to do that. Man, we want to exploit this building and that field to do that. We do. I'm so thankful that we have the opportunity to do that. I want to see this building, we call it a ministry center, used almost 24-7 with people coming here and people seeing the character of God in mercy ministries, being taught in these common grace kinds of ways. But in every one of those things, we are either at that moment giving them the gospel or we are making sure that we're using it as an opportunity, as a contact to give them the gospel. The gospel will have to remain and will remain front and center. All right. Now with all that, I've got four minutes left. And in my final four minutes... I want to just summarize uh, the relationship that we are to have as God's church, God's called out people, with the world, those who are yet to be called out of the world into God. Notice how I say that. That's just me and my optimism, okay? 
So instead of saying unbelievers, I try to remind myself to say they're pre-believers. Okay? I'm optimistic about us reaching them. All right? They just haven't gotten there yet, and God's going to use us to get them there. Right? So this is a summary of the relationship between the, the God's people, the church, and the world that I use that's been helpful to me. There are four possible ways you can look at that relationship. And I'm going to give you all four, and only one of them is right. The first one is that in the relationship between the church church and the world, you can be in the world and of the world, both in it and of it. Well, that, that one's wrong, right? If you are both in the world and of the world, that means you're a garden variety pagan, okay? That means you're a pre-believer, in and of. Second way is you are not in and not of. Now, who is that? Now, at this point, we should probably define those prepositions, in and of. In means where you're located, physically located. Of means the source of your values. Where, does your, where do your values derive from? Is it from God or is it from the world? And it's possible to be not in the world, that is, not physically present in the world, and not derive your values from the world, not of the world. Now, who is that? Not in, not of. Well, that is uh, the monks, right? These are people who, who withdraw themselves from the world. This would be Amish people. This would sometimes be people like us who think that the number one thing we've got to do is keep our kids from being contaminated by the world. And to keep ourselves from being contaminated by the world. And so here's what we do is we physically withdraw from the world. We're not in the world. That is, that's a wrong approach as well. You can be in it and of it. You can be not in it and not of it. You can be not in, but of. What is that? Not in, but our values come from the world. And this is what many in evangelical Christianity are doing today. The not in part is we've got our own versions of everything the world does. So the idea is anything the world can do, we can do just as good or or better. But we can do it with our own people. How cool. You got talk shows, we got talk shows. You got amusement parks, we got I mean, have you seen this? This is what this is what ministries try to do. They try to mimic everything that the world's doing, but our own version of it, a Christian version of it. So we do it with our own people, so we're not in. But all the while we're of. Our values are the same. Our values are derived from the world. The only right approach is the one that Jesus gave in the prayer that he prayed the night before he died in John chapter 17. And Jesus said to the Father, Father, I've called these followers to myself, and they are in the world, but they are not of the world. They are in it, and they are not of it. We are called not to withdraw ourselves, not to isolate ourselves from the world. We are to engage with the world. But in so doing, we we are called to be extremely careful that we do not become of the world in our values. Now, it leads me to one last definition, and we'll be done. Sometimes this is phrased, engaging the culture. 
How does a church engage the culture? And what I'm advocating is you have to engage the culture. You have to engage the culture, but you do not become of the world in so doing. And what's the difference? Here's the difference. Worldliness is fallen values expressed in culture. You should write that down because that's a really cool definition. Worldliness is this, fallen values expressed in culture. And we cannot, we cannot engage in the fallen values that the world expresses in its culture. We, we can't mimic that. We should not mimic that. We should identify that and avoid it. That's what worldliness is. Fallen values that are expressed in the way the world goes about its business. And failure to do that means that our churches become worldly. We mimic the values of the world in the way we go, what we do and the way we go about it. But what we, we can do is not mimic those fallen values, but remember common grace? God in His common grace has still allowed the world, those who are outside the church and, and yet outside of Christ, has still allowed them to maintain a vestige of godly values. Now, they never do it for the right reason, and they don't do it with knowledge of, of God and for His glory. But there are a number of things that the world still values that God created. So mercy, think about that. Is, does mercy ever go out of style? It doesn't, does it? Now, here's the cool thing, and I'm done. If we do what I'm talking about, a ministry like that never goes out of style. Because it's not beholden to the trends of the world. It's not beholden to the latest thing that's cool in the world. All the things that I'm talking about, the the mercy ministries and the common grace ministries and communicating the communicable attributes of God, all of those things are always fashionable. They do not go out of style. So a church like that can be on mission all the time and not be changed to and fro with every new trend that comes along. That's the kind of church we want to be. If you're on board with that, hang around. If you're not uh, in the church, I encourage you to become part of the church. If you don't know how to become a part of the church, it's our job to tell you that. First thing is you come to Jesus Christ. He calls you by his gospel, by his good news, out of the world and to himself. And then you align yourself with a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church where you can grow and you can carry out his mission in the world. I know of a good one. If you don't like this one, I can tell you of some others. But you need to be a part of the church. Most of you here are indeed members of our church. And so I hope that will help you now as we embark at this juncture in the life of our church on reaching our culture, reaching our community for why we allow certain things and certain things we, will, we do not do. If you don't agree with all of those, at least give us this credit. We've at least done our level best to try to think about what the Bible says about what the church is and what the church is to do and to try to implement it in Trenton, Michigan. Let's ask the Lord to grant us safety and bring us back together next Lord's Day, all right? Father, we thank you for the opportunity these last three weeks to think about church. Church is your idea, and the church is yours. And I don't get to do whatever I want with it. We don't get to do whatever we want. We don't get to just make it up. We have got to look at your word 
and what you say about what the church is and what the church is to be. We've got to correlate, correlate the truths that you've given us in Scripture, theology about yourself, and bring those to bear in application to a proper philosophy of church ministry. Lord, you have warned us in your word. You've told us that we need to be careful how we build on the foundation that has been laid. Because we will give an account before you as to how we build your church. And so, Lord, help us to be people who understand that we are under your authority at all times. Help us, particularly as leaders, to understand that we will stand before you and give an account for what we did and how we did it. Help us to carefully study. Help us to prayerfully think. And help us to clearly articulate what your church is to be about and how we can go about reaching our world for you. Lord, we thank you for these sessions. And I thank you for these people and their willingness to think about these important matters. Go with us now this week as we seek to implement this in our spheres of influence. Lord, help us to show your mercy and your communicable attributes. Help us to relate to people in our conversations based on the common grace that you have given to to all of us. Help us, Lord, to relate to people because we are transparent about our own struggles with the fallenness that that we have and that we're affected by. Go with us this week, we ask you. Grant us safety and bring us back next Lord's Day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.